When's the last time you checked your cell phone? Are you obsessive about your cell phones? Uh, Facebook, Instagram, other things like that. I did a little experiment this week, and I realized that I, uh, in a one-hour span of time, I checked my I checked my phone four times, and not because I got a call or a text. It was just in case, you know, because I want to be aware of the fact that I'm wanted, that people like me, uh, that there's, you know, at least 10 likes on my Facebook picture that I posted, or 100 likes if it's my wife's Facebook picture that she posts that are so much better than mine, apparently. Uh, we have this thing in us, don't we, that we, we just want to belong, we want to connect, we want to feel like people know us, value us, connect with us, we want to know what's going on in each other's lives, we want to feel like, like we matter, it's in us. Uh, not too long ago, I took my wife, who did not go to USC, I went to USC, but she is an adopted Trojan, and we went to a USC game, and it was her first time in you know the Mecca that is the University of Southern California, and, and it was a crazy experience. I have a picture that I took that I wanted to show you. It's, it's actually a little bit crazy because these people, they're so desperate to belong. We all have this in us, right, that we'll stand wearing the similar things, looking at a man in a dress, and we'll, and we'll put our fingers like this, the sign of victory, which means nothing to most of you, but this is for V for victory, and we'll do this until our elbows wear out, right, because we want to be a part of the thing, we want to be a part of something. You know, if you went to any other university, that's, that's what we do. We, we want to belong. We want to feel connected. We want to feel a part of. We want to feel like we're in, we, that, that, uh, that we have a family, that we have connection to something bigger. And we do crazy stuff. You know, we, we do crazy stuff to belong. We get plastic surgery. We buy the right clothes. We go to the right places, hang out in certain things. We, we, even stuff that jeopardizes our own health, we participate in or we do just so that we can feel like we belong. When I was uh, about 10 years old, we had recently moved to Claremont. I was going to Condit Elementary School, and I just wanted to be with the other guy. I just wanted to be cool. I just wanted to have friends. I just wanted to be a regular guy, right? And uh, I watched Saved by the Bell in those days. I did. I did. And, and I, even like as a 10-year-old, I think I looked a little bit like Zach Morris. Lori, can you fire up the, the 10-year-old <laughs> Zach Morris? If you notice in the back there, my hair extends a little bit low. There's, there's a little something going on there. Some call it a mullet. I just called it a ducktail. You know, there's, there's, there's extra hair back there. And that became kind of a trendy thing. I made it I'd like to think that I made it cool. There were some moms that would come and tell my mom, who's here today, by the way, which is fun, and my grandmother is here today. They would come and tell mom, they would say, hey, you know, my kid wants to grow his hair out because Caleb is doing it. Can you stop? You know, <laughs> this is getting ridiculous. And, uh, and so, but I, I remember that I was 10 years old playing basketball on the blacktop at Condit Elementary School during lunch or recess. Remember recess? Wasn't that a great time? I was playing basketball, and I, and I heard from someone who wasn't playing, who was sitting over on a bench, I heard him say, man, how long is Caleb going to grow his hair? He's starting to look like a girl. And I think I missed like the next five shots in my basketball game because I'm like, 
um, I, I look like a girl. I, you know, I, I thought that this was cool. I thought other people were doing this now. And I, so I demanded probably that my mom take me to, to supercuts later that day or the next day and cut my hair off. And I went short again because I learned that to be accepted in elementary school, at least to Condit elementary school, your hair could be long, but not too long because then you looked like a girl, right? But I don't think that it is just an elementary school. I don't think that it's just something for back then. I think that we still today are so desperate to belong, so desperate to be a part of something, so desperate to feel like we have value and worth that we will do crazy stuff and that we, we want to feel like we're enough, that we matter, that our significance is, is valid, that we are significant. As silly as it sounds, it's still relevant Today And today, we do some other things, even in religious circles, right? We want to make, make sure that our church attendance is strong, maybe. We want to not cuss. We want to make sure we're not doing these other bad things. We, we want to make, maybe not see rated R movies. What, what for you are those extra things that give the appearance of a spiritual life? You, they, they may be any number of things that kind of show, prove, demonstrate that you are spiritual, that you are, you have it together. For me, I, I actually worked at a church where, this is a number of years back, where I signed something that said that I would not drink while I was on staff. Now I get it, I get why, because it had been abused, and if people drink too much, they cause a scene, and then it reflects poorly on the church, and I get it. But what happens in that kind of a situation is that then we make a decision for ourselves, some kind of a discipline or a standard that we set, but slowly, because of that decision, to justify our discipline, we start comparing ourselves to other people. And then all of a sudden, the other people who aren't as disciplined as us, they start to become less than, right? Now, I, I, I lived this way, and I grew up in a culture that was this way. And you, have you heard the, the, the slogan that dancing feet shouldn't be attached to a praying knee? What is that? That's crazy. Who started that? Who, who decided that it was evil to dance? And, and in the culture that my dad grew up in, you couldn't play cards, if you followed Jesus, you couldn't go to movies if you followed Jesus. There were all these religious structures, these hoops to jump through to, to make it look like you were really serious about your spiritual life and your faith. And I fell into that, and I remember judging people. I did that. I didn't, I didn't intend to be that way, but to justify how disciplined I felt I had to be, I looked down on others who weren't. That's what happens. That's how you become religious and not just following after Jesus. And my whole world got blown up and exploded when I went through a divorce. And I realized all this whole structure that I've been trying to create to make myself look good, it's all just been blown away. And I am just like everybody else. And now those people that I used to judge are judging me because this situation out of my control that I can't fix has exposed me that I'm broken, that I can't keep it all together. And so today we are reading in the book of Colossians in chapter two, where Paul is writing to a church, a small church meeting probably in a home of about 40 or 50 people. And they are being taught 
by someone within their ranks that just to follow Jesus and trust Jesus isn't enough, that you also have to do all this stuff. And so Paul is talking to them, and he is making sure that they get this point, okay? That this isn't why Jesus came. Colossians chapter 2, we are going to talk about this religiousness, and then we are going to talk about why it's irrelevant in a few minutes, okay? But first, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and on the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. What happens, what happens is that religious people, religious people will get you to focus on the what instead of the who. People that are trying to confuse you and make you think about other things, they will get you to focus on the what, the stuff, the stuff you do with your hands and not the heart and not the who of Jesus. It says don't be captive, don't be captured and led away. That word literally means like pulled by the hair, like pulled away, captured. Don't be captive to these thoughts, these ideas that you have to do this extra stuff. It's not the what, it's the who, as Paul is going to drive home in this point. Now, how can we be captive? How can we be spiritually captive? Now, there's, there's a couple of ways. You, you are a captive, whether you know it or not, you're a captive to sin before you trust Jesus. So some of you that haven't engaged yet in this spiritual life, you will find that it's impossible for you not to sin. I mean, all of us, let's be honest, all of us, we don't schedule it in in our iPhones and day planners. We have a tendency just to figure out how to sin, right? It just kind of comes up and we just kind of do dumb stuff and maybe probably regret it often and whatever. But before Jesus, it's just, we're a, we're a captive. We're slaves to it. It's, it's just our destiny. It's who we are. That's, that's, that's just the reality of it. But even after you put your trust in Jesus, even after you receive the fact that you can be forgiven for everything for all of time, even after that, you can still be captive in your mind. And that's what Paul is telling this church. He is saying, you are letting yourselves be captive again in your own minds by this thinking, by these teachings. You are being convinced that you still have to be good and religious and stay clean and keep traditions, and you don't. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. I know what you're thinking. Finally, we're talking about the new moon celebration. That's really been weighing on me. How do I, how do I work this out? I'm getting so much negative feedback from people about my rituals with the new moon. So that isn't as relevant. But what this means is don't, you don't focus on all the traditions and the stuff. He's telling them don't, don't focus on the rituals and the religiousness. That's not what's, that's not what's important here. That's not, the, that's not the stuff that you need to worry about. That's not the main stuff. Don't let yourself get judged and don't be someone who judges based on these celebrations, based on these performances, based on that stuff. Don't get caught up in that because then you will be a judger and you will be someone who is restrained and captive to that kind of, to those activities and you will miss the whole point of what Jesus did. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that this is justification just to go and do whatever you want, 
right? Because I have friends, I know people that have done that and have lived that way. That's just kind of like, hey, I believe in Jesus. In fact, I love it. He has forgiven me for everything for all of time. So even though I'm going to go do this crazy thing, and he already knew that I was going to do it anyway, so I'm forgiven. I'm good, right? That's, that's how this works. And that's not the case. We, we can, we, he does forgive you, but there are consequences for that kind of behavior. You don't want to live that way, right? You don't want to live that crazy. You can err on either side of the other. You can err on that crazy kind of reckless rebellion side of things. And you can err on the religious, strict, tradition, ritual, that kind of thing, right? So you can err on both sides. And Paul is specifically talking to these people who have believed in Jesus, who have put their trust in Jesus, who he wants to live free, understanding their freedom and love in Christ, and yet they're putting back on all this this extra stuff, feeling like they have to live this certain way. And in verse 17, he, he goes further. He says, these things, these traditions, are just a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality ever, if you're playing along and have your notes out, circle the reality, the new reality, your new reality, is found in Christ. So how many of you, if you, you know, maybe you're a kid, right? And you, and you did something, you broke the vase. Uh, I, I broke some stuff when I was a kid. And do you remember what it's like to feel like you're in trouble and your teacher or your parent, let's just say it's your dad, is coming, right? He's seen the broken glass and you're hiding, cowering under the table or in your room and dad's coming. And I, I remember seeing the shadow because the, the light was just right coming in the window and I could see the shadow. And when I'm in trouble, the shadow looks a lot bigger. <laughs> then I'm like, dad's big. And I think that I see a wooden spoon in his hand, right? So there's this like intimidation, this shadow that's telling us I'm in trouble, that I've done something wrong. And that's what, that's what Paul is talking to here. There is a shadow that was cast leading to who Jesus is. And the shadow is the law. The shadow is the, you've heard of the Ten Commandments, right? And then they added a bunch more on top of that to try to keep themselves clean and pure. And that was the shadow. That was, that was to teach us that you can't, that we can't keep them all. If you feel guilty because you break commandments, welcome to the club. That's the point of the commandments, to convince you that you can't keep them. That's why they existed, to point to the fact that Jesus would come and he would work it all out. Those things were all a shadow, the Bible says, of Jesus who would come and who would make sense of it all to prove to us that we can't get it right, that we will struggle in sin, that no matter how many things that you construct to try to make your life seem spiritual, you will blow it, and you need this Jesus. So don't focus on the shadow things. Focus on him. Don't focus on the what. Focus on the who. That's part of the deal. That's why he came. Verse 20, we keep going. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Since you died to Christ, since you were in him, why do you keep living this way? Do not handle, here are the rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things, they have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, and they're based on merely human commands and teachings. These are, these are the do-nots, right? You get this. These are, these are the do-not. You, you, maybe you grew up in a do-not culture too, right? Do not do this, do not do this, do not do that, do not do that, and don't do that either, right? There's, a, there's plenty of 
list of things that are the do nots. He goes on, verse 23, such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They have the appearance of wisdom. They have the appearance of religiousness. They have the appearance that you've got it together, but they lack any real value in helping you be who you want to be. Why do religious people do all the things that they do to try to seem spiritual, right? It's a matter of appearance. And the appearance might look good, it might look fine, but on the inside, you are not able to control yourself. It takes the who, not the what. And what he says is that you will become fake. It's, it's false humility, it's fake spirituality, and it's torture. It's, it's just difficult to keep living that way. You, you, you just get tired of yourself feeling fake. That's why you judge others, because you're disappointed with yourself. Either way you go, that rebellious side or that religious side, you're going to be dissatisfied. It's not going to work. So why? So what does work? How, how do we, what's the point of all this? Why? If none of that stuff, then what is it that Paul is driving to? And he's driving to the who, which we're going to go back to verse 9, and we're going to see it right here. You ready? You still with me? Here we go. Verse 9, Colossians 2. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. If you have your outline and you're playing along, circle fullness. That in Christ is the whole fullness of God. That he comprises all that is God. And because of him, he has brought you to fullness. That is your new reality, that you are already full, that you are already belong. You don't have to keep doing stuff and keep acting on stuff and keep making yourself better or improving things to belong and to be full in him. You are full. You're full already. You might not feel full. You might, you might still wake up feeling empty. You might wake up struggling or feel like, oh, I keep struggling in this area. But the truth of the matter is that he has made you full. That as soon as you trust him, that old life is gone and he fills you with him. You are full. You have been filled with the fullness of God. In verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Anytime we start talking about circumcision, it's not comfortable. I know. I'm sorry. The guys like shift in their seats and cross their legs. And it's just a weird thing to talk about, right? It is. Uh, but here's, here's what this means, is that in that day... In that day, they literally circumcised all the men to show, it wasn't just for fun or for cleanliness, they did it to, to show that they were a part of the Jewish family, that they were, they, were, they, were, they were Jews, they were part of God's people, the Israelites. That was kind of the physical demonstration of that. And so there was, there was a tendency for some people in this era, when they came to know Jesus, even though they, you know, they, they hadn't been Jewish, they were grown men, some of them were still being circumcised as grown men to, because they were told that they had to still fit into this Jewish tradition. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the case. You don't have to be, that's, that, that thing is done and that, we're over that. You don't have to be, circ- you can be, just like you can, you know, do some other stuff. You can drink, you can dance, like you can, that's fine, but that doesn't put you in good standing with God. Like you're not earning anything, you get that, right? 
You, you, that doesn't make you a part of the family. He says, you haven't been circumcised with human hands, thank God, but with, with his hands, that he has made you right, that he has made you a part of him. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised with him. Your old life is gone. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism and in which you were also raised with him, your faith in the working, through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. If you're familiar with baptism, it's a simple sim- symbol. Baptism is literally being buried with Christ and raising again in him. That's what we do. It's a symbol that what Christ did, we enter into. That when you are baptized into the water, you're buried with him. And when you're brought out of the water, you're risen to live a new life in him. That's what it is. We're baptizing people this Friday, people who have gone through Rooted. It's going to be awesome. And, uh, and that's all that that means. That's what baptism is. So for you, friends, when you put your trust in Jesus, when you say, I'm in, that's what he does. He takes you, you are dead to your old life, and you are now alive in him. That's the great mystery, that you die with him, and you raise and live in him. And faith, faith is believing in that strange, mysterious reality, that that is true of you. That's what faith is. Because verse 15, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You were made alive in Christ by his forgiveness. So this is a financial term here he uses. It's fascinating. He, he makes it about debt. So literally your debt, your, your spiritual rap sheet, all the debt that you've accumulated, all the stuff that you've done throughout your entire life, stuff that you don't talk about at parties, stuff that still other people don't even know that you haven't told people. He's taken it, he's canceled that debt, and he's nailed it to the cross. That's what he has done. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now get this. In that day, the Roman soldiers, the the, the Roman army, they were famous for, for annihilating other kingdoms other people, other armies. And when they would, when they would conquer some other army, they would take the victims, the remnant of that army, with their bloodied, battered arms, limbs cut off, they would take them, they would tie them to this post, and they would parade them through the city so that everybody knew we conquered these people. They, they, are, they are a conquered people, right? I think I have an image This is an ancient image of something that it would have looked like. So they take all their stuff, all their valuables, right? They put it on this train of humiliation, and they tie the victims to it, and they would parade them through the city streets. And they would in that say, we we have triumphed over our enemies. They are the losers. We are victorious. Now get this. When they crucified Jesus... What did they do? They put a cross on him. They gave him a wooden beam and they paraded him through the streets to the hill, Golgotha, 
to be crucified. I think I have an image of that too. So they have this beam, this cross. They parade this man, who we believe never sinned in his life. They parade him through the streets to be crucified and ultimately killed. And they thought that they had victory over him. They thought that they had authority over him. And in the biggest, ironic, poetic, script flipping of all of human history, Jesus intended to die. And in that action, he says, the Bible says that he made a public spectacle of them, of sin, of evil, triumphing over all evil on the cross so that it no longer has its hold on you, so that you are no longer a slave to sin, so that you don't have to be controlled by your compulsions and that stuff anymore. And even when you do sin, it doesn't eliminate you from God's presence because he has forgiven you and he's taken all the things that you have done and will ever do and nailed them to that cross and he has flipped the entire script and triumphed over every evil thing for all of time. That's what he did. That's what he did. And so you and I don't have to live as victims of sin, don't have to live mastered by our sin. Even though we do bad stuff, it doesn't own you. Say to yourself, just say it out loud, say, sin is not my master. Sin is not my master. Now, just, now whisper it even just so that only you can hear it under your breath. Sin is not my master. Sin is not my Sin is not my master. Say that to yourself this week. Sin is not my master. That is the truth. That is, that is your reality. But then the question is, why, why do I still do, why do I still have this tendency to get pulled back in? And I was thinking this week about some friends of mine uh, who went to Kenya and they found these, they were serving with street, you know, serving street kids and they had been before and they were with this group and they found these two boys whose mother had died and they were living on the streets, literally sniffing glue. I don't know if, that's, if you know that, but in Africa and in places like that, they sniff glue sticks and glue because you can get a high from that. It's the cheapest kind of high that they can get. And so these are like four, five, six-year-old boys, and they're sniffing glue, living in trash, living in the streets. And these friends of mine brought them home. They went through this whole big ordeal, had to fly back like three different, three different times, uh, and, and adopted these street boys from the streets of Kenya and brought them here to live in South Orange County with them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around kids who have been adopted and brought from another country, but you may or may not know that they still act <laughs> as if they're there. They still have these scars and damage, and, and they don't trust that they're going to have their next meal. They don't trust this family yet. And so anytime they see food, they hoard it. And you'll see these kind of kids with, with their hands just gripped like this full of Cheerios because they're not sure they're going to eat again. How can they be sure? They lived their whole life to that point without knowing where their next meal would come from. So, so my friends would find food and things stashed away under their beds, you know, and in their pockets. And that's just... That's just how they lived. That was, that was what they knew. They didn't trust. They, they didn't know how to process this. But imagine if my friends had gone through that whole process, brought these precious boys to live with them. Imagine if some legal authority, some authority figure from Nairobi, Kenya, flew 
and came and tried to intimidate these boys and tried to make them feel like they were still street kids, like they still should sniff glue and scrap for their meals and everything else. Imagine if, if an official, an authority, some kind of powerful person in Kenya would stand at the doorstep and say, hey, you, you kids, you're still, you're still street kids. That's who you really are. You don't belong here. They could try to intimidate, but what would these parents do? They would step in front, they would look at this authority figure, and they would say, no, these children belong to us. These are our children now. They have a place of belonging. It doesn't matter what they've done. They are a part of our family. Friends, I know that for me, for many of us, that is true of you, that you are a part of God's family, that he has rescued you, he has nailed every thing associated with your guilt to this cross, and yet we still sometimes live like street kids. We still go back to that. And my encouragement for you today is to trust in the cross, to trust that Jesus did what he did on that cross, and that your sin and your guilt is forever gone. And then to enjoy his freedom to enjoy the place that you now are between you and God, that you don't have to create all these religious structures, that you don't have to perform a certain way, that you don't have to fight for your next meal and hold your Cheerios, that you don't have to be worried about if you dance or if you accidentally say a cuss word in front of somebody, that you are free in Christ, that he has made you free, that everything you've ever done and ever will do has been nailed to that cross, that ironic cross who was supposed to be, it was supposed to be the symbol of his embarrassment and of Rome's triumph and God flipped that thing and he made it your triumph he made it our triumph that we can know that sin is no longer our master sin is no longer your master this week as you go about your day as you think about the things that tend to trip you up or the patterns you fall back into or or if you're just on the verge of trusting in Jesus and you're like, I don't, I don't think I can commit to that because I know I can't live that perfect, like, clean life. That's not what it's about. I want you just to remember that you don't have to be a slave to sin. And if you trust Jesus, you are not a slave to sin. Sin is not your master. Don't worry about the behaviors this week. Just whisper that to yourself a hundred times. Sin is not my master. God, would you continue to speak to us? Give us that confidence. Give us that security in you. We know that if we trust, if we trust what you have done, if we trust your work, if we trust the mystery that your spirit is in us, the behaviors will take care of themselves. We believe that you are God over all of that and that you will give us what we need to overcome sin. We just trust you. We belong to you.